Hey there, and welcome to the Lighthouse London podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Stan from Headliner. Hello, Stan. Hello, hello. And I'm obviously Dan, so a nice bit of rhyme there. Stan, tell us a bit about yourself and Headliner, just briefly. What's the elevator pitch these days? Well, basically, uh, Headliner connects talent, musicians, bands, and DJs uh, with event planners to perform at private events. Polished. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's, it's good to have you in today. You and uh, and your team are like the reason why when someone comes into Lighthouse to talk about startups, I, uh, I can look them in the eye, stick on the new business voice and go, we've been working with startups here at Lighthouse for five years, <laughs> which uh, is a long time, especially in startups. I mean, think yeah. about things that weren't around five years like a ago. a lifetime, yeah. Probably on Basecamp Classic. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right. yeah, absolutely. I even read the email again the other day uh, that you that you sent. I heard this was almost five years. Was it March yeah. 2011? Absolutely. Yeah, blimey. It feels a lot longer, but has that time gone quickly? It has and it hasn't. I think when you look retrospectively at what we've done over those five years, we've achieved a lot. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, running a startup is pretty hard work. Um, I think often when you listen to people talk about startups, it's quite clipped and there's a summary of all the great things that happened and mm. they tend to uh, to leave out the bits that are a lot harder. So yeah, so it's certainly five years feels like it, to some extent, it has zipped past. Yeah, yeah. When I've read the email back, it was very hard to perceive that I was talking to someone that was still going to be an entrepreneur in five years' time. You know, I think one of the things from back then... Uh, the reason I counted it from when you came and started working with us is because we had like dabbled in a bit of startup stuff before that, but the bandwagon as it was then, so that you know we'll 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 get into the difference between bandwagon and headliner and the story there. But um, that was the first one where after we built that thing, suddenly you re- you know normally people would then just disappear and you kind of <laughs> rang up a month later and were like okay so there's 2,000 people in the database yeah. and we were like what what do you mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know well uh, what are we doing about that has anyone yeah. sold this, this, the hosting company <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and I think so yeah definitely for for us it was like the first time we'd like worked with people who had like a plan and I suppose the one of the things really want to talk about today like in line with a lot of things we're talking about at the moment in terms of prototyping and testing plans, testing features, is like how people should know when to develop. So with Bandwagon back five years ago, like how did you decide you needed to come to a web agency? Like, What's the bit before you emailed us? I yeah, I mean, so I think when we, when we sort of describe it to people now, we say that we sort of naively got into tech through mm-hmm. um, discovering a problem having a mission and a vision for what we wanted to do and trying to fill in the gaps by learning about technology. And so I started as a music promoter and we were promoting emerging and unsigned talent. And the the guys that we were promoting were, were fantastic, but they were really struggling to find other venues to play at and other opportunities to play at um, to, to kind of elevate their career. Uh-huh. Um, it was at a time where we began when we very first started promoting using MySpace um, and nice. MySpace kind of changed its focus away from that sort of emerging and unsigned talent ecosystem to one where it was very focused on uh, more recognized names. So we we're in a position where we needed to create something and wanted to create something where we as promoters could accept new talent, mm-hmm. but where new talent could find venues and promoters as well. Um, 
so we kind of took what we knew vaguely, probably from the usage of MySpace, um, and started to think about how we could do that. So what we did is we started with Facebook, which in effect was the new MySpace. Right, and this is this is what five years ago looked yeah, like. This, yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> this is the yeah this was kind of yeah Facebook in 2010 or probably back in the 2009. I was still sharing photos of nights out on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was a really good opportunity at that stage where Facebook really hadn't implemented any of their monetization strategy. Mm-hmm. So, as a page or as a group you could actually bring two parties together. So what we did is we started by effectively advertising uh, our own night as an opportunity mm-hmm. to come and play. And um, we knew two or three other promoters in the London area that were willing to do the same. And so what we did is we just started to, to advertise those opportunities to musicians. And what we saw was a kind of quick, rapid rise of musicians that were joining the page, that were applying in effect to, mm-hmm. to come and play and wanted to perform at our events. And that gave us the kind of early idea about how Baumagen could potentially operate. So it was kind of your minimum viable product to use yeah. today's terminology. Yeah, exactly. Which I mean, that wasn't even there. The no, we didn't, then. we didn't call it an MVV at the time, no, but it certainly but, was. That was the way that we approached it. But it was just a Facebook page, yes, essentially. Absolutely. Awesome. Were people asking for it? Were they like saying this? Like, were the people on the page saying, can we have another platform? Or did you just think there's things this Facebook page can't do which we could? Uh, a bit of both. We had a few people contacting us and saying, you know, the page in itself was a great idea, mm-hmm. and then suggesting, you know, how then then saying, well, then how do I send you different links? How do I, mm-hmm. you know, send you my biography because it wasn't necessarily there and present? They didn't. All of these, not all of these musicians necessarily had a page. They were more yeah. of a, you know, they had their own profile. So it became apparent to us that we needed to sort of take it a stage further. At that stage, we had maybe 2,000 uh, artists on that page. Wow. And we knew that that would give us an opportunity to create a community. And that was ultimately what we wanted to do. We'd started by creating community in Facebook. And we knew that to some extent we could migrate that across if we built the right features for them. Yeah. So we sort of took the blueprint of, of what we knew about MySpace, the community that we built in Facebook, and then obviously tried to build a product that had the best of both worlds, really. And that was where we stepped in. Yes, in terms of the kind of uh, the the vision that you had, did we keep it very close to that original Facebook page, or because I because I didn't see the interactions on that, or were we were there other stuff we added on? The vision was obviously to connect artists directly with venues and promoters mm-hmm. and enable them to communicate and negotiate that that kind of booking of performance, um, and I think. To some extent, probably with the early versions of Baumacken, we probably built way too much. Mm. We got um, we got a little bit excited about the proposition in yeah. terms of how much people would interact on the platform. We certainly, uh, you know, na- knowing now what I knew, um, we just gave people too much choice, yeah. um, too many things to think about, and actually, to some extent, just got a little bit away from the fact that it was a, an artist and it was a venue or promoter, and it was just about connecting them, and that was the first thing that we needed to achieve. Yeah, I distinctly remember that we built out some uh, features around how artists and promoters would communicate with each other, that looking back on it, I think we were essentially attempting to take text messaging and email <laughs> yeah. like out you yeah. know what I mean that, we, that, that, that was yeah. the that was the problem we were coming after <laughs> yeah and yeah of course we, uh, we, we hit a bit of a brick wall with our kind of 
there was some kind of complex way of people penciling each other in, yeah, like a sort of three-step confirmation yeah. thing, uh, which surprise, surprise resulted if I'm going in, no one ever confirming. No, yeah. and this was a problem, you know, giving, you know, again, referred to nowadays as sort of choice architecture, we were giving people far too many choices, yeah. choices that they probably hadn't even thought of themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you, you end up with uh, an interaction that kind of sits in limbo. Mm. And in a, in a product where you want people to go end-to-end from essentially connecting with one party to negotiating and then agreeing that deal, you have to get them over the line and giving them five or six different yeah. options or statuses along that funnel was just was just way too much and we were seeing too many people in limbo too many fanciful <laughs> people yeah and i think it's it's kind of amazing when you look back on that as to how the design and execution of those kind of services is now actually so different you know the user experience of getting someone through and the things i think that even you're like when i look at headliner now it's so different the choices that have been made about how you engage someone and get them through whereas i think what's happened there is what's happened with a lot of the industry I think is that people have realized that you need to get that feedback in you know you've got to put something simple out and then you can start seeing if you develop it because I think what we learned was that once you coded that it seemed like such a small thing to then say well let's just take that out again but it never really happened and it's not that we weren't working on the product back yeah, yeah. then. So it must just have been that it was just never... Like, once your startup's going, you can't afford to be spending time removing things, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think, like, where Bandwagon kind of... Like, maybe let's go across the... What then happened about how Bandwagon turned into to Headliner. Not that it turned into, Bandwagon still exists. But there was a bit in the middle where it almost became that the features people wanted off bandwagon were like festivals and things well what was ha- what ended up happening there yeah so i think once we'd kind of nailed down the process for artists to be able to apply for opportunities mm-hmm. what we needed to do as a as sort of as a product and a, and a business next was was ultimately to be able to offer them different opportunities some of the artists on our platform started to grow and they were getting fan bases and therefore the opportunities that they needed were different to, to mm. say a new artist that was joining bandwagon so that's a at that stage then we started to approach larger venue groups um, and that led on to then speaking to festivals as well um, they all at, at different levels have exactly the same problem which is that um, there's so much availability of talent, mm. but there's no real way to be able to manage and review them and contact them. Um, most of these guys are using email, and as we all know, yeah. we don't need any more email. No. Um, and so having a really simple solution to be able to to select from those different types of artists appealed to all types of venues and all types of festivals. Um, and we saw it as a great opportunity to grow the community of artists that we had. Um, and certainly I think working with festivals did that. Um, you know, some of the festivals that we worked with enabled us to bring up to 2,000 artists into the platform at any one time mm-hmm. and then serve them with the, the more local opportunities that we were offering. So it was a sort of natural progression for us to do that. It's something that we probably could have done sooner again if we thought more closely yeah. about that interaction between promoter or talent buyer and, and artist. It felt like you did it without tweaking the product too much as well. So it was yeah exactly. So it was almost like a, a kind of nice um, you know step up linear offering. It was just doing it at a larger scale, but we wouldn't we weren't adapting the product too much to mm. to be able to offer it. And I think that was 
important for us to be able to scale the business and the product um, at the same time is that if we were having to offer different solutions yeah. for different uh, for different buyers, that would have been very, very difficult. But actually, the very basis of what we built was right because it's what people ultimately needed in the product. So it was quite easy to offer it between very large festivals and, and small local promoters and venues. And, um, and Bandwagon almost sort of became then that that part of it which the festivals used was like that was nearly a prototype for what I felt was like a going to be another kind of business model entirely of like taking bandwagon into the kind of on other people's sites application yeah absolutely yeah and I think we learned a lot about the I think the the potential for how you can use widget technology Mm -hmm. um how you can use the other people's uh, promotional platforms to grow the, your own distribution platform yeah. and your own ecosystem, but it's mutually beneficial yeah. by doing that. You know, we had it where venues and festivals would be able to to offer that solution as an application form um, and as a process on their own site, which would in turn grow the ecosystem of Bandwagon. But they were getting that under the hood solution where they were managing all of their submissions. So. We were building it, but it was, you know, it was a it was a, a mutually beneficial feature for both parties and enabled us to grow and scale the the, the, the business a lot faster than we were, you know, we, we would have done just as a standalone platform. I think. Sure. And then, so a headliner, like when you when you went and started there, what features did you take across? What out of bandwagon? made it into headline and was there a moment of being like we can trim off a load of stuff here or or like how did how did you go about designing what features should be in headliner i think the big difference between bandwagon and headliner and, and the ultimate frustration i think with bandwagon was that as a as an opportunity platform it worked incredibly well i think we booked uh, just over fourteen thousand gigs wow. in three and a half years the next stage of that, though, was to to enable these artists to have a sustainable career around performance. And in order to do that, they've got to get paid. And with the opportunities that we were offering with Bowmagen in traditional music venues, often that pay was pretty low. Yeah, um, you're lucky if you get a cup of tea and a sandwich. Yes, and as a marketplace, that's pretty difficult to transact on those terms. So with Headliner, um, there was a natural audience in the private event space that were actually willing to pay for talent. So what we had was the opportunity to take what we'd learned with Baumagen in terms of the interaction between two parties, which mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time refining about how one person interacts with the other, how that, that deal is contracted, um, how it's accepted or declined. And we learned all yeah. of that through Baumagen. And never penciled. Yeah, and never penciled. <laughs> and, then, and then adding into that really then the, the transactional element of the marketplace, which, which we were unable to do with Baumagen. So that was really, um, it was really just an additional step. It was just taking, again, it was that, taking that idea of, okay, so how do you nudge people along this funnel? How -hmm. do you get them to make the right choices? And certainly what we'd learned through Baumwagen made it a lot easier to to build the first version of Headliner. That's not to say that with Headliner there 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 were issues with the with the new audience that we were bringing. Yeah. And this wasn't a, it wasn't a promoter or a venue, so it wasn't somebody that was used to dealing with with musicians and talent. So we had to be aware of that as well. But that basis and that understanding of how to build a product where two parties contract, negotiate, and and ultimately confirm a deal. Yes, it had all been taken from our kind of learnings with Bandwagon as well. Did Headliner have a uh, like a Facebook page esque from Bandwagon era? Like version, did you when you when you decided okay we're going 
more for the, the corporate stuff here. Um, what did you put out there to test that? We decided that um, our competitors were traditionally kind of commercial agents. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted to get a feel for how a commercial agency operated. So what we did is whilst we were beginning to build the, the architecture for, uh, for the platform, uh, Maria and I, one of the co-founders and headliner, um, pretty much set up shop as a, as a commercial right, agency. Nice. Because we really wanted to understand where, where are the pains in operating that agency. We were very lucky through, through our contacts that our first client was Facebook. Yeah. Um, and we did Facebook's uh, Christmas and summer party. Excellent. But we managed that as an agency, first and foremost. Sure. So we, we, we worked out very quickly where the problems were between, um, as an agent sitting in the middle as a gatekeeper between the talent and yeah. the buyer of talent, where that could be disintermediated, yeah. where no longer you needed that role. Because there were so many steps where it could have been very easy for the talent just to manage that process with the talent buyer, yes. which was to some extent, validating exactly what we were doing. Yeah. We were just learning that process by kind of being in the role and, and, and doing that job as a commercial agent. That's awesome. Yeah. That is exactly, yeah, I love that as a way of learning. Just basically put yourself, make yourself the technology, basically, and then, yes. and then try and replace yourself. Yeah. Try, and, try and get yourself made redundant by building something better than yourself. And exactly, and that's, a really, and that's a really fun and exciting thing to do because every headache that you have through that process yes. is what you're building in the product. So you know that yeah. it's the right thing to do. And often you see when people are starting businesses, startups, they are generally coming out of a domain or an industry where they have identified a problem through their mm. processes or their workflow, and then they've built a business off the back of it. And it seems like a sensible thing to do. Do you think that you have to have that as an entrepreneur or can you go about tackling a domain you don't really know? I think sometimes, to some extent, being naive, naive in the industry mm. in which you're operating in can be a good thing. It can work in your favour because if you take music, for instance, there are a lot of players in that ecosystem that um, I think working in the industry you could get bogged down with yeah. and you could you could feel that it would never be possible, for instance, to to refine or make that workflow or that deal flow more efficient. I started as a promoter, but I wouldn't say that I was hugely entrenched in the music industry. Sure. And that enabled me to look at it from a different perspective and say, mm. okay, well, I understand a little bit about how this operates. I have some domain knowledge, but actually I'm gonna approach this from a completely different angle. I'm gonna take technology and make that work for me in this industry. If you've got some understanding of how it operates, I think it's a huge advantage. But at the same time, if you're too entrenched yeah. in the industry, I think it probably would be very difficult for you to have that perspective and to build something that's different and new and innovative ultimately. Yeah, just just enough, Yeah, basically not, not so much that you've had the kind of passion knocked out of you by absolutely by an industry's processes. Yes. You've got to still be angry, but yeah. you've also got to know your customer. Kind That's of. right. Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the reasons we're chatting today is because recently we we sat down and started looking at where Headliner might go next in terms of its feature set, and we did that via kind of a, a little prototyping workshop we do. Before that, how were you going about kind of tracking features and testing features and those kind of things? Was it was it all still coming from your knowledge of what you'd done when you'd been an agent yourself? Um, we we did a lot more this time in terms of we 
we spoke to a lot of what we saw as our future customers. Sure. So we sat with them. We would interview them for one or two hours. We would we would not talk at all about headliner, the classic Great. mum test. The mum um, test. The mum test. That gets mentioned every single podcast. Yeah. Well, it, it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It works. And It'll be in the show notes again this week. <laughs> it's it's so true. I think it's something that if you... If you I always advise people to do it in that way because mm. if you're talking to a potential customer and you talk about this solution, this amazing product that you're building, yeah. they if they like you and they're most likely to like you if they're going to sit down and spend an hour of time with you, they're probably likely to agree that everything that you're building is going to be incredible. Yeah. If you don't talk about the that product and you talk more about the issues and the problems that they have around a particular process or job, that gives you a far greater understanding of what you should be building. Yeah. And sometimes within that, there are things that you have already thought about, and that's fine. That validates that in its entirety. But also, I think at times, small things come up from people that they are they will openly share when you're not discussing a product that you're going to build. And that enables you to flesh out what that roadmap looks like over time. So we did a lot of interviews with, with both stakeholders, so both artists uh, on the supply side and then potential customers on the demand side. So... We looked at people, for instance, that were, were getting married and looking for artists and how they were going about it. And we were also speaking to people that had got married yeah. um, or a corporate that had booked a band and how had they gone about it and what was their experience of that, what worked and what didn't yeah, yeah. work. And that's what formulated the sort of early idea. So we took some of our experience in building a product, but we listened very carefully to what people really wanted. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's great to hear someone who's running something you know, talk, talk about that. I mean, that's what we preach to people. That workshop that that we ran. I mean, I knew you would have already seen it, but a lot of people won't have read something like the mum test. And we we'll normally just send them a copy afterwards. Yeah, and be like, right, you've got you've got your prototype now. Yes, here's what's here's what to do. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, did you did you use like sort of line for line the techniques out of it, or did you kind of did you find that as you went along, you started adapting? them to something more useful for you or yeah i think you can again you you have to be very careful that you don't bias that conversation mm. it's very easy to do that um but for us we got a lot of use out of that and there were certainly some things that we were thinking early on that we would build into headliner that became quite apparent that would just wouldn't be wouldn't be useful for yeah. either party to use um and there were surprises as well in terms of what people ultimately wanted um, I think the thing that excited us in terms of the artists was that they are—they were looking for a much more managed solution. So beyond the transaction itself, they were looking for ways to be able to manage their calendar, manage that deal flow, whether it be not just in the leads that we generated that with for them through the marketplace, but also all of the other leads that they were getting after performing or through the pho- through phone or, or email as well, and and that was exciting for us, I think, because we saw something that had longevity. Mm -hmm. I think marketplaces nowadays need to move beyond just the transaction. And they need to create uh, a community and a tool and a service for for the users on the platform. So those conversations came out of the the early conversations with artists even before we built product. Cool. And then turning that learning into an actual feature on the site, um, was that just a case of, take it design it did you what did you do with those designs between that and you know pushing the live button 
Um, so we 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 started with uh, a staging um, mm-hmm. environment. Um, we would build the very basis of uh, an artist profile, so we would understand we understand yeah. what most artists at least requ- would require, but really what the booker needs to be able to see. Yeah. Um, and we would test those as well in terms of their usability. So what was the UI UX like? We sure. we continue to do that now. Every new feature that we build, we will tend to A/B test. Um, so we'll look at how, where the different buttons set. How, sure. how do we how do we get people to, to, for instance, to add the content that we need? How do we get people to interact between bookings? Um, often it's the small iterations rather than the large mm-hmm. design or feature changes that make the biggest difference. I think once you have a very good idea of what that that minimum viable product is, you don't want to be changing it too much at an early stage. You want to be looking at how, are, you know, are you getting people through that process and are people comfortable with that and what's preventing them from doing so. Mm-hmm. And before you do that, you shouldn't really be building any more beyond that. You should just be refining that process, which is what we did from the outset, was can we get someone to a booking and then to pay for that yeah. talent? And that was all we needed to be able to do. And I think that's just the, the way that we've continued to develop ultimately. And we use lots of different techniques to do that. And some mm-hmm. of it's very quantitative. So we're interviewing people, we're testing, we're filming them when they're testing and seeing what they're actually doing, how they're interacting with the platform. And some of it's very qualitative. So we're actually looking at what those interactions are through the funnel. So we're yeah. looking at, um, we're looking top of the funnel all the way down to CRO and we're measuring every step of the way, clicks, what they're viewing, how they're viewing it, how they're interacting with it making sh- small changes to see whether that improves their intent through that flow really sure i think the the prototyping that um that we've done i think is trying to get in between those two stages maybe yes. like sort of somewhere in between the learning and then the risk of putting something out because you know as you're saying you you do put something minimum out and you tweak it which is great for that kind of um small steering but it's when you want to make a big leap that i think you know something like um something like just creating a new prototype of it can help yes i mean did you did you get that off the sprint or was it well, by sprint i mean prototype sprint of course it's all branded yes all branded yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, go check the video guys yes. <laughs> um for us it was I think we were just trying to get to that initial kind of aha moment mm-hmm. from from both sides. And really, um, with Headliner, it is the direct interaction with either party. Yeah. Most of the time prior to Headliner, you would be working with an agent. Yeah. So actually, for an artist to be able to receive an inquiry, so to, for us to be able to show them a prototype of, you've received an inquiry, mm. this is directly from somebody. This hasn't been pushed by an agent. Yeah. We're not involved in that process. And you can now interact directly with them. For them to work through that process and give us some sort of genuine feedback, but also for them to be able to see, ah, this is how the product works. This is different to how my current relationship works yeah. in terms of taking inquiries and bookings as a musician was very, very different. And that's all we needed to get people to initially yeah. was do they understand that this is a different type of workflow to how they currently take their bookings and their inquiries? Yeah. And so the the you know the initial prototype was just enough just to show them that they could do that. Cool. And so what's 
like the next sort of short, medium term looking like for headliner. I won't ask long term. That's obvious. We're all going to be booking, <laughs> yeah. booking everything through headliner. Probably have diversified into literally, you know, TV channels and on demand, everything. But um, what's you know, what, what are you guys up to next? Uh, we've got a redesign coming out uh, at the end of this month. We've been pretty, working pretty hard on that. Um, and that's just been focused on really what we've learned through what people need on mm -hmm. the acquisition side. Yep. Um, we're at a point now where we feel like the product works quite well in terms of being, people being able to find the right talent and book them. Mm -hmm. um, we just have to push more people towards the headliner platform for that to happen. So we want just more interactions, more engagement. So we're working really hard on that at the moment. Nice. Well, anyone listening to this that needs a, a band for their corporate event, wedding, <laughs> or, or or whatever, go back and listen to the elevator pitch at the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, get over to Headliner. What's the domain? It's headliner.io. Nice. And IO, very very now. It is, yeah. Very, very much so. Wicked. <laughs> um, and can they find you on Twitter or anywhere else? Yep, same. Um, Twitter forward slash uh, headliner.io. Cool. Um, same for Facebook as well. Cool. And you, what about you personally? Is it private life separate? No, everybody can email me. I'm stan at headliner.io as well. Please uh, please feel free to feedback on the product. Great. We'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll stop there. It's been brilliant. Uh, cheers for coming in. So that's been the Lighthouse London podcast for this fortnight. Um, the music you heard at the beginning was by Encompass Sound. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, the tweets are We Are Lighthouse. Um, and the web addresses, of course, we are lighthouse.com. Uh, please give your feedback and do rate us on anything you're listening to this on, whatever your podcast flavour of choice is. Cheers. <laughs>